ora, tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. That's uh, a Māori greeting. It's uh, saying hello, how are you? Have a nice day, but also um, welcome one and all, basically, as Richard will uh, be familiar with. So welcome to the University of North Carolina, Richard, on our Zoom link. Uh, we're very happy to have you here today. Uh, kia ora to you from Monash University in Australia. And my first question for you is, uh, how is the weather? I think you always start with the tricky ones, Ben. Yeah, sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> uh, yeah, kia ora. Nice to hear a kia ora. Um, so I'm a Kiwi, but I'm living in uh, Australia. Living in Melbourne, it's the second biggest city. There's five million people. And uh, the, the summer has been uh, dry. It's been dry in Australia for uh, the last two years. And uh, we, we occasionally get these heat waves where it's 115. Uh, but in Melbourne, it then the, the very next day, it will drop to 70 or something. Uh, on the whole, the weather is uh, fairly mild in Melbourne. And uh, I don't know if you've been watching the Australian Open. There was a couple of days there where it was above 100 and other, um, early on there was uh, smoke haze and, and problems. So when I got back uh, into Melbourne from New Zealand summer holidays, uh, the smoke haze was terrible. We had the, the worst uh, atmospheric pollution in the world uh, for a few days. Um, uh, but it's it's all cleared up and it's it's a nice day today. 82, 85 Fahrenheit, something like that for the rest of the week. Blue skies. That's the weather report, Ben. And uh, what, nice. what about the fires? Are they clearing? Uh, have you got by the control? Yeah. Are you, are you yeah. yeah, I think the, uh, the more typical... Uh, so Australia, uh, there's seasonal fires um, every summer. Um, uh, they're a lot more under control and um, there's less reports of concern and damage. Uh, but it's been catastrophic and it's been very political um, of late. Uh, so the, the lead party had not been talking about um, uh, climate change and human impact. And that's become very much on the political agenda and media agenda. Um, and they just had an election at the end of last year where the opposition party put climate change as the number one issue, but the Australian public didn't uh, think that. Um, so they weren't elected, and I think it'll be more of a factor in time to come. Very interesting. Yeah, and I uh, hear your Prime Minister was slayed a little bit, uh, <laughs> slightly. Yeah, yeah. Sounds pretty appropriate for an Australian. So uh, I'll just give you a little background. I met Richard in 2010. Uh, we started at the University of Auckland together. We were recruited to improve and enhance research agenda of the Faculty of Education at the University of Auckland. And, you know, we did all right. We were both there about eight years. Uh, Dr. Richard Pringle is a Foucauldian, for those of you who don't know, and this will be podcasted. So uh, to me, he is someone who can explain and articulate a very deep and complex philosophical position, uh, emerging from Foucault's work, highlighting spaces between and uncovering silent voices and representing marginalization. Uh, and he's able to uncover and deconstruct this uh, very complex work in physical education and in sport as he does in his writings. 
But it's very important that we relate to this in terms of society in general, and our colleague in peace and conflict studies would relate to that. And in education, of which we are very much connected to, but in, in our everyday lives, it is my pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Richard Pringle from Monash University, Australia. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for that introduction. So I'm yeah, very, very pleased to be here and, and uh, on your class tonight. Um, I, I am a, I see myself as a critical sociologist of sport, exercise and gender. Um, and if you are going to have any concerns about the place of sport, one area that's really important to look at is within schools. And uh, so uh, some, of, some of my research has been within schools and within physical education and within school sport. So the, uh, Ben asked me to talk about critical pedagogy and if I could uh, offer a couple of papers uh, to introduce that. So um, the couple of papers there, um, I think they fit in within that critical sport pedagogical lens. Mm -hmm. um, what's, what's your understanding of what critical research is or the critical paradigm? Anyone? Good question. Are you looking at me? Yeah, looking at <laughs> They're all looking to me. Okay. Um, I think of critical as, as having um, the aspects of power and privilege at the forefront of the research and, in, and also tend to take, a, in, I believe, a transformative um, approach so that it's not just calling it out. There is an expectation of change. Okay. That's perfect. I, I agree. So if you're a critical scholar, does that, does that mean that you dislike the things that you're researching? Oh, dislike, interesting mm, word. Interesting. I don't think it would be dislike, because I think there's a passion to what we do as researchers, but I think there's a deeper story that needs to be investigated and told. And yeah. I think we're able to do that with and with you, I'll have to have to give you, I totally enjoyed the two pieces yeah. and the creative methodology. I was, it was, it was very, um, if we're allowed to say fun to read, I really enjoyed the approach and um, really, really, I know I, I really need to figure out how I can do this as a, as a future researcher. So this was, it was really motivating and inspiring to read. I don't, I don't think it's a dislike either. I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, a willingness to sit in the tension. Yeah. More, yeah. Than, more than a dislike. Okay. So I, I agree. I think if you're critical of something, um, particularly with critical sport sociologists or critical sport pedagogues or critical sport historians, Often they've got into this area of research because they've been quite passionate about sport and it relates to their biography and uh, either they've typically enjoyed playing sport and they've wanted to have a career in it. And then typically as they've aged, uh, they've realised actually the sporting world's not a fair place and uh, they want to try and make a difference. Um, so... My analogy of being a critical researcher is if you think about your parents 
most of us love our parents. At the same time, we wish they didn't hold some particular values maybe or didn't do certain things. You wish you could transform them a little bit. Yes. Um, I see that as uh, similar to my research in uh, physical education and, and sport. Um, and I make th that point because I think there's a mistaken view that if you're a critical researcher, you just uh, want to, you dislike something and you're, you're putting it down. And George Sage, an American sports sociologist, made the point, it's actually because you care about something and you want to change it and make it better. So uh, that's the stance that I take with uh, this research. Um, I totally buy into the idea that it's an attempt to be transformative. So I think critical researchers, if, if we make a difference between, say, positivist, interpretivist, and critical researchers, the interpretivist researchers want to know what's going on, how people make sense of the world, um, and try and understand how other, other people view, primarily. I think there's a lot of overlap between interpretivism and critical paradigm. But I think the critical paradigm is underpinned by recognition that there's a fundamental unfairness in, in various aspects of the world, whether it's income distribution, uh, whether it's gender relations, whether it's related to sexualities. And rather than just trying to know what are these people thinking about this, it's underpinned by that desire to, it's not just good enough to want to know we know there's some injustice. We want to try and make a difference. So uh, who, who are the names in sport pedagogy who you identify as critical researchers? Well, we, had, um, we had Dylan Randy in here actually two weeks ago um, uh, from America. He was out. Uh, um, Do you know Dylan Randy? You remember that guy? <laughs> yeah, I remember, oh, yeah, I remember uh, Dylan was in supervising his PhD. Oh yeah, there we go. So, right. rims, <laughs> yeah. so that's uh, so that was, we had Dylan in last week actually, and that, that was probably the first time I'd uh, really introduced or I'd been I was introduced to a social critical um, researcher in the flesh, I suppose, so to speak. Yeah, so that's one example anyway. Okay, so uh, would Mary be a critical pedagogue, or is she more interpretivist? It's uh, a good question. Mm. Um, hmm. I know that uh, she would have done a lot of uh, <coughs> even work with reason. I actually got into a lot of this is because of the work she would have done with Emer Enright, who's in the yeah. University of um, Queensland. Queensland now as well too. So again, a lot of yeah. that would have been a kind of a, a critical. Uh, it was action research, I suppose, but a lot of that would have been critical. Uh, thing. There was a lot of critical thinking in that her work as well too in Ireland when she did her uh, dissertation. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so I think um, my observations, and I tend not to go to physical education conferences, is there tends to be more sort of critical scholars uh, within physical education uh, within New Zealand and Australia, uh, and possibly the UK, and less so in North America or, or the US. And I think it's an interesting sort of observation, and I'm not sure why... It is that way, and it might just well be that uh, in New Zealand it's a relatively small country, and if you've got uh, a relatively new discipline like sport pedagogy, 
and you've got some a couple of critical scholars leading it 15 years ago that has an impact that filters through and I know in Australia you've got the likes of people like David Kirk and Richard Tinning who have uh, been influential in, in shaping uh, curriculum documents uh, <clears throat> and ways of thinking um, but I do get a sense that it's different in the US is that true Ben? Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate representation of it, Richard. Uh, a lot of the US uh, scholars, maybe they're positive, post-positivists, maybe interpretivists, but there aren't a lot of critical... Bit. There's some, you know, like uh, in different pockets. I, I think the a lot of the US relies more on myth, methodological uh, work and methods seem to be more important, whereas... In New Zealand, Australia, you need to develop very strong theoretical frameworks uh, and yeah. things that's very similar. So I think, and sometimes, you know, uh, the, in New Zealand, Australia, I found, you know, very philosophical as well. And uh, perhaps even uh, out of touch with what was going on in the schools. But then yeah. at the same time, <coughs> New Zealand... Uh, there was some good work going on in schools, and then in the U.S. it's very similar as well. There is more work going on at the universities than in the schools in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine you sit in both paradigms, Ben. <coughs> yeah, I think I do. Uh, but, I, you know, I haven't written uh, from a social critical perspective, but I think certainly part of my life and work in, uh, with underserved programs has very much been that way. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I think uh, first we have to find out and interpret, uh, help to interpret what's going on out there because I still don't think we really understand. You know, we were just talking today about a better understanding of what social-emotional learning or belonging or caring is in physical education from the perspectives of the students and the teachers in the school setting. Uh, and for us to be presumptuous and think we know about that and then lead the way, I think that's not the direction. So I guess right. I'm still at the stage of uh, trying to find out, excavate, you know, rather than uh, say how it should be. Or yeah. from a curriculum perspective, yeah. I think there's a lot of harm done where we have a curriculum focus, a scripted curriculum, which is very uh, is is very narrow and, and not uh, flexible, and uh, then doesn't transpose to the real setting with kids and teachers. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Good. Um, I guess my point about thinking about your paradigm as developing your PhDs, I do think it's important to reflect on how you see the world, your sort of ontological views. Yes. And I think that is linked to your uh, ideas about how you go about constructing knowledge and uh, therefore your, your methods. So that whole research paradigm, I think there's links. And if, say, you see the world as unfair, say, from a gender perspective, you're more likely to be a feminist researcher, you're more likely to want to try and challenge what's going on and make a difference. And that doesn't mean to say that you're going to choose a qualitative research method. I think some of the most successful uh, feminist researchers have been quantitative researchers who highlight differences in salaries or um, hours worked in the home with uh, home labour and differences. 
And a lot of politicians are good at reading numbers, uh, but they're not so good at reading uh, qualitative stories. So um, if you are a critical researcher, it doesn't mean to say you should be locked into doing qualitative research by any means. It's whatever type of research you think can make the most difference in challenging the issue or injustice. Um, but anyhow, yeah, so think, think about how you view the world, think about what's important, um, and uh, at the same time, think about your career. It's because if you pick a critical issue and you never get employed and you can't research in it, um, but, uh, then you're not going to change the world anyhow. Uh, unless you become a full-time activist, but it's hard to survive uh, in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's um, let's talk about uh, a couple of papers. So uh, the first one I wanted to talk about was this um, paper, No Rugby, No Fair, Collective Stories, Masculinities and Transformative Possibilities in Schools. Um, <clears throat> so it, again, this stemmed from uh, my early PhD research where I uh, interviewed a number of men about the place of rugby in their lives. And... Uh, Rugby in New Zealand is a national sport, um, even though for many years it was only played by men. Uh, It's probably similar to the place of, uh, you've just had the Super Bowl there. Um, Did all of you watch it? Yes. Eddie, did you watch it? Yes. Super Bowl. Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's also popular in China. Yeah. Oh, is it? So uh, rugby's probably similar in its uh, central social position. And at the same time as it being quite central to New Zealand life, um, it was difficult to raise any critique about it, uh, particularly sort of 20 years ago. Uh, Yet the sport was associated with the production of a particular type of masculinity. Um, The guy that played rugby, perhaps similar to American football, I'm not sure, was the guy that uh, was willing to knock someone else over, uh, inflict pain, um, tolerate pain themselves, uh, not get too worried if they've been concussed. This is 20 years ago. Get back onto the field the next week. Uh, So um, certain attitudes are like that. On top of that, within the Kiwi culture, uh, playing the game of rugby's long been associated with drinking beer. Uh, after games, um, the main sponsors of the games are often uh, local beer companies. And uh, for many years, women were not allowed in the rugby uh, club rooms uh, up until about the 1970s, unless they were serving beers or uh, uh, bringing food. Um, so the culture of rugby was quite sort of dated in its masculinity. Uh, and gender relations, Uh, yet it was a game that was meant to be celebrated. Um, So I was interested in talking to a range of different men about the influence of rugby in their lives. And what was really quite clear is approximately half the guys I talked to absolutely loved playing the game, and it was a real passion for them, and uh, for some of them, they they lived for the game, uh, particularly those that played at the elite level, Those that played at the elite level, their bodies were completely damaged at the same time, but they weren't critical about that. So I talked to one guy who who, uh, was playing at the highest level in the country, and it took him an hour to talk through all the injuries, starting at his head and down to his uh, feet, the number of 
concussions, operations, broken bones. Uh, he even um, cracked his cervical vertebrae and was in hospital. And uh, the, the doctor said, if you play rugby again, um, you'll be paralysed. You can't ever play. He gave up for a season and then played without clearance. Um, uh, he said he couldn't handle not playing. Um, so that, to me, I was sort of critical of that attitude. That seemed strange. But on the other hand, there was a group of guys that I talked to who really uh, didn't like the game, but they knew that they uh, had to play it at elementary school. They knew they had to look like uh, they knew what they were doing on the rugby field. And as soon as they didn't have to play it, they stopped. And it was interesting talking to these men reflecting back on their lives because um, many of them were, were good, uh, normal men, uh, but a couple of them were in tears talking about their experiences at high school in, in rugby and how they were made to feel different, how they were othered, how they felt like they were not normal. <clears throat> so there, this um, encouraged me to think about uh, what can we actually do in schools to challenge uh, to give voice, to let people be able to raise a critique about this game. Excuse me. <clears throat> um, how, how can someone say, actually, I don't like rugby, uh, I'm not fond of it for these reasons, and not feel strange about it? Um, and on the other hand, uh, how can you raise a critique about something that might also be uh, harmful for gender relations and types of masculinities. So that was the underpinning idea of this uh, paper. Uh, and so through not just my own research, but looking at uh, the research of other people, I think physical education and school sport uh, for a period of time has been linked with the production of a dominant form of masculinity. And a lot of people would use the term hegemonic masculinity. This, this idea that uh, uh, there's a hierarchy of masculinities and maybe not all men uh, are exemplars of this hegemonic masculinity, but they aspire to it. Um, and the hegemonic masculinity is the one that gets the most status in a certain social context. So in a physical education class, which students get the most status? Who gets the most respect? The sportiest uh the quickest, the fastest, the ones on the, the teams or the school teams that are successful, I suppose, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so they, they tend to be the sporty boys. Yeah. The, the more competitive, the more skilled, they get more status. Which kids get sort of marginalised in a phys ed class? The effeminate. The effeminate? Yeah. Uh, kids that aren't as skilled. Um, and how does that impact on those kids? It can be a very isolating experience, you know, uh, and you know, students can walk into a, a gymnasium or a sports hall or, or a pee hall and um, immediately feel that they're ostracized or that they're isolated or that they're not part of okay. uh, the norm, I guess, yeah. Okay, so if, if that's how those kids, if that's what they've learned in physical education, what are those kids likely to do when they leave school in terms of being physically active? Not. They're just not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And what do most physical educators say their main aim is in teaching phys ed? To develop skills, knowledge, and dispositions to be physically active for a lifetime. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> the way that we appear to teach appears to be unable to achieve that goal. And the people that we should be most concerned about are perhaps those who aren't active, um, but the way that we teach tends to have the opposite uh, effect. Is that, a, is that a comment you can relate to? Yes. <coughs> yeah, so there there's, there's appears to be an issue there. Not only are phys ed teachers possibly failing in what they think is important, uh, but there's also this marginalisation of uh, a group of students. There's a reinforcement of a dominant form of masculinity. And there are a range of social issues tied with the gender relations that stem from that. That dominant form of masculinity, how does that impact relations between males and females? Or how is it theorised to impact? So if you've got these, let's say, blokey males with a lot of status who feel good about themselves and who don't, uh, are happy to tolerate pain and see other people who aren't masculine as a problem, how are they likely to look or view uh, females? Is there any relationship between that? It's a subordination yeah. that happens, yeah. right? Yeah. They are above them in everywhere. Yeah. So that's how it's been theorised, that uh, the dominant form of masculinity is at the top of the gender order. And uh, <clears throat> Raywin Connell, who's a, a gender theorist, uh, talks about a hierarchy of masculinities and at the top of the gender order is this dominant group of men who exhibit certain values and attitudes uh, that tends to subordinate a woman and tends to marginalise other forms of masculinities. And for many years, the most marginalised form of masculinity, as Donald said, was the more feminine or effeminate and specifically a, uh, the, a guy who identifies as gay. That was sort of the context uh, for undertaking this. <clears throat> and I guess looking at the context of rugby within uh, New Zealand and my own research, it seemed to reinforce this. And the sport pedagogical research was suggesting that similar things were happening in physical education. So as a critical researcher, I'm concerned that if physical education tends to reinforce dominant ways of understanding masculinities and dominant ways of understanding femininities, then we can start to understand that maybe physical education is reinforcing a gender order, which is a little bit problematic. And if this is the case, it suggests that maybe we need to do something uh, and change what we're doing. So, the recognition that schools can not only reinforce understandings of gender and sexuality, but clearly they're also a place of education where if teachers are <clears throat> have been critically educated, it's a, a really useful context for trying to challenge uh, problematic sets of gender relations. So um, with issues of sustainability as an example, one of the tactics that critical researchers are using uh, educating children in schools to go home 
to educate their parents to recycle and uh, look after the planet. Uh, so there's that recognition that teachers have a fairly malleable audience uh, and also a uh, contained audience. So if you really want to change the world, schools are potentially one of the best places to try and do it. Whether your issue is around uh, health, uh, race, uh, gender or sexuality, or uh, I would say uh, peace and uh, conflict. Uh, schools can be a useful context uh, for educating people. So this led through to this sort of question. So how could I actually do this? How can I try and challenge uh, some of these ideas around sport and gender within within a school. Um, and what I thought about was one of the issues with people that I'd interviewed around their, uh, the place of rugby in their lives, the guys that felt marginalised by rugby, they also said they could never raise their concerns. They could never talk about it. Um, and in New Zealand, and it's probably similar in the States, a way that guys particularly communicate uh, are like, hey, did you see the game last night? What about that Super Bowl match? Um, and because that's such a normal way of communicating, if you respond by saying, no, I didn't see it and I don't like the game, you're automatically looked upon as there's something wrong with you. So if you can't raise voice or concern about an issue, you're then not, uh, that issue becomes silenced and the status quo continues. So part of my thinking was, how can I uh, encourage students to be able to voice uh, concerns or to let other students know, actually this game of rugby, it might be really enjoyable to play. And Ben and I uh, played it for many years and Ben and I would even go and watch rugby matches. I'd be the critical researcher going, this is a terrible game, Ben. Yeah. And then uh, celebrating the tries and getting excited watching the action. So, yeah, a little bit schizophrenic. But... Um, <clears throat> uh, we're only human, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I miss those days, Ben. Um, I miss watching rugby with you, mate. We'll, we'll do it again another day. So... Uh, I th um, came across this idea of a collective story. And so a lot of people, when there's an issue, they often think that they are the problem. <coughs> and they're unaware that... Um, so the kid who's marginalised in phys ed, the kid that feels like, um, I don't like phys ed, they never, they never sit back and go, actually, the whole way that phys ed is taught is highly problematic. Um, they, need to they need to change this because this isn't working. They don't think that because they see the other kids enjoying phys ed. Uh, they think this is normal and they think, hmm, I'm the kid that's unskilled or un uncoordinated or uh, uncompetitive or non-aggressive. And they think that they are the problem. So uh, Laurel Richardson had this idea of a collective story where you go and interview a range of different people uh, about a, a social issue or experience. You get their story 
And rather than just saying, this is Harold's story, this is Ben's story, Donald's story, it's a, a cumulative uh, story, a collective story, where you try and blend uh, different people's experiences into one story. <clears throat> the idea of writing it in story form is that it's more accessible. So for, for many of us, if we want to change the world, I think um, we each relate to information differently. So I'm um, trying to think of something uh, topical. Um, if we talk about this novel coronavirus, mm -hmm. uh, some of us get excited to know that the death rate is doubling every five days. Yeah. Or, or we get horrified by that. So that's a quantitative way that some of us will be able to resonate with and think, yeah, we really need to do something. This could be a big pandemic. Yet other people... Um, will be moved into thinking about action uh, through hearing uh, people's stories. So the story of a family where the mother's uh, passed away, the father's got uh, two kids to raise, and um, uh, that sort of situation. So for some of us, the actual narrative or the story that we can resonate with, um, and I think Hollywood does this really well, or TV shows. I don't know, any of you remember a TV show called Roots? No? Yes. Probably, yes. probably yes. 40 years ago, 30 yes. years ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Not too long ago. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But that, that for me, um, uh, I remember reading the book and then watching the TV series. Um, it was about um, racism in America and it... Uh, highlighted many issues for me at a personal level, and it sensitised me to some of those issues. So one way uh, that a collective story can work is that people can read it and they can resonate with it. And if you are emotionally grabbed, uh, then you're more likely to be concerned about something and want to make a difference. So it was an attempt to try and... Um, write something that was evocative. Uh, so the process was uh, going and interviewing um, eight, uh, it was only eight men, and about their school experiences. And these men were purposefully selected because of their, because I was aware of their background and relationship to rugby and growing up. And I wanted to hear their stories. So the issue then was how do you um, get eight people's different collective set of experiences and how do you write it as one story? And uh, the first time I wrote the story, I just used their words almost from the transcripts, interview transcripts, and put them into the story and sent away the article to get reviewed. You're not meant to know who reviews the articles, but Andrew Sparks uh, reviewed it. Andrew Sparks, right, very good. And he, um, he wrote back and said, uh, I'm not moved by your story at all. It's not evocative. Um, it doesn't work. Uh, so I thought, oh, well, maybe cutting and pasting uh, the different guy's words is not a way of, of doing it. So I had a go of trying to be more emotional revealing more of uh, one particular character 
tried to present him as a normal adult reflecting back and talking about these experiences. And these, these experiences were things that happened to the guys that I interviewed. So uh, one of them said he was forced to play rugby at elementary school. Uh, he was the smallest guy um, uh, on the field. And when people tackled him, they didn't just tackle him. They tackled him and then liked to see how far they could throw him. Others said that they felt like uh, they were a, a small gazelle on the African plains being chased by lions, and it was just terrifying for them. Uh, so there was a range of, there was an opportunity to talk through their stories and try and present it in a way that others could relate to. So after I'd had a go at writing the story, <clears throat> Um, I went in and worked in a school for a period of time. And uh, <clears throat> in, in New Zealand, health and physical education are combined in the curriculum. And health is often taught uh, within classrooms. And so I took that opportunity within the health lessons uh, to read the collective story to the students. Um, or maybe they read the story. I think they read the story themselves. And uh, what was interesting to me was that the students were all quite quiet when they were reading the story. And <clears throat> at the end of the story, I asked them a range of uh, questions. I wanted to know, did the story seem real uh, in the first place? And uh, could they relate to the story? And if so, how? And <clears throat> the clear majority did report that they could relate to the story. And then I asked them, you know, how did the story make you feel? And many of, many of them felt sorry for this character. So they could uh, develop a sense of empathy and concern uh, for this character's well-being. And uh, then what, was there sort of a message in the story? And if so, what was it? <clears throat> And that's where uh, some of them struggled. So they could, feel, uh, they could feel an empathy for this character, but they then couldn't connect it to a broader sort of uh, story or issue. And that's where there was a need to unpack and have discussion around those things. So that was the following on with that. Um, I found the ideas of Michel Foucault useful to think, think with and a uh, uh, useful set of tools for unpacking issues. And I had this other idea that, hey, if critical researchers find these tools useful to think with, why don't we teach high school students how to use these tools, see if they can use these tools, and then they're in a position to critically think their way through social issues. <clears throat> so there was a watered down attempt to try and teach uh, Foucauldian analysis. And <clears throat> in really simple terms, uh, Foucault talks about what he calls discourse. And uh, discourse, the shorthand that I used for the students was a discourse as a way of knowing something. So I asked them, how do we know masculinities? 
So critic, uh, academically, we'd say, what are the dominant discourses of masculinities? <clears throat> In this class, I asked them, what are the stereotypes of how we know men? And we listed them on the, the board. And uh, they would say things like, real men drink beer. Real men um, like to barbecue. Real <laughs> men... So they, they listed a, a whole range of these sort of stereotypical traits. And then we said, how do we know rugby? And they would say, rugby's played by, you know, tough men. Rugby's New Zealand's national game. Rugby's something we celebrate. Uh, rugby players are skillful. <clears throat> um, rugby players get injured. So they, they listed a lot of those discourses about rugby. And then I asked them to think about what are the discursive links between those. And I think that's where they started to realise there's, there's some symmetry between the values in rugby and what we associate or what we celebrate with, with uh, so-called real men. And then I thought after they got those connections, they'd, they'd then be able to... Uh, I asked them, you know, what or who contributed to Tony's problems in this story? But a lot of them then couldn't do that. So I thought they would make connections to the dominance of rugby, the way that we know rugby, the way that we know or expect men to be, and that these social factors, these discourses, were the things that were working against Tony feeling good about himself throughout his high school. <clears throat> but um, many of them didn't get that. They couldn't go that stage. And maybe if I had to work with the students longer and given different examples, I think they would have. I think they would have got there. Some of the students did get there. So this was a, a sort of an exploration around the place of using a collective story to uh, challenge dominant ways of thinking. For some of the students, it wasn't successful at all. How did I know that? Um, when I asked them to write down, um, you know, what should we do about these problems that Tony's faced, their answers were, Tony, Tony needs to harden up. So it still became Tony's problem. That there was something wrong with him. Um, but many of the others recognised and it gave voice where they could discuss issues. And some of them were quite open about, discussing their relations with rugby. So I saw it as uh, successful that things you probably couldn't ordinarily talk about, um, it gave them an opportunity to raise critique and concern. And in, in that way, I thought it was a mild success. Is it gonna change the place of uh, the dominance of rugby in New Zealand culture? No. But maybe if there were health education teachers throughout the country doing similar sorts of things, providing opportunity to, to reflect on people's experiences, reflect on how some people are marginalised, reflect on the production of masculinities, maybe it could help uh, challenge some ideas that might challenge the dominance of the game. I guess uh, as a critical researcher, you have to keep a degree of optimism that what you're doing is making a difference. 
even though in reality when you switch on TV and it's the Rugby World Cup and the country's going crazy, you know you're not having a great impact at all. Any questions at all? If uh, these students wanted to uh, try out collective stories as a critical pedagogical tool, um, how do you think they might go about that uh, in their own contexts? Or do you need a specific context to be able to, I guess you need a critical issue or you need a phenomenon or you need a, a concern to yeah. try to uncover, right? So yeah. just talk a little bit more about how they, they might consider it as a type of methodology for their own work. Yeah, yeah, no, you, de you definitely need that issue. And you need a, an issue where people typically have not thought that uh, there is an issue or it's an issue that hasn't really been voiced or critically discussed. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me, Laurel Richardson's at Ohio State where Mary O'Sullivan used to work. And <clears throat> <clears throat> I've got a bit of coronavirus here. You're okay, you're safe on that side. Uh, yeah. uh, I don't, I better wait for the speaker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Laurel Richardson's first attempt at a collective story, it's, it's, was quite a strange process. Uh, she wrote about the other woman. So this was a, uh, I mean, how do we think of, of, of a couple who are married and the guy's having an affair? How do we think of that other woman? Uh -huh. Come on, you can tell me. <laughs> Poor pitiful thing. Yeah, yeah, terrible, pathetic, so homebreaker. Oh. And for whatever reason, Laurel Richardson um, went and talked to a bunch of these other women and wrote their story. Because oh. <clears throat> not that she was trying to encourage people to become the other woman by any means, um, uh, but it was something that hadn't really been written about and it was also something that was always looked upon as such a terrible thing, yet it's not necessarily all that infrequent. Um, and, of course, these other women also felt like they could never tell people, hey, yeah, I'm the other woman, yeah. Um, so, strangely enough, that was her first foray into collective stories and... Um, uh, the, the main idea is, is for you, if there's an issue that you're grappling with, if you want to make a difference, if something has uh, been silenced, then I think it can be a useful tool, useful pedagogical tool. Um, and story is one thing uh, that students can write. Uh, they actually like writing stories. So if you're working in classes, you can get stories, uh, students to write stories around issues. You can collect their experiences and you can write a collective story and present it back to the students. Um, so it's coming from them and it's their voices. Uh, yeah, I mean, that could be an interesting, an interesting task. Well, actually, you might have someone in this room uh, doing that as a pilot study. Judy? Yeah. Um... Like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed reading these pieces because I think with what I have been reading, it's the path or the, um, the different types of methodology that we're seeing a lot 
Um, it's redundant. So this was very refreshing to see. Um, I personally, and I take this from that practitioner's view, uh, oftentimes I would listen and get the best ideas from my students that I would teach. And I would yeah. come to the class with an idea and I would say to them, okay, so this is my idea. How can we, how can you guys make it better? And of course they would come up with these wonderful ideas. So hopefully my path, um, I would like to explore more student voice mm. and possibly use student voice as a way to inform pedagogy. Okay, that sounds good. So do you have a particular issue, Judy, that you're looking at? Well, I think I've got, um, uh, I don't know how to really define the issue. I guess really right now, um, so it tells you I don't have a true research question right now. Uh, <laughs> but I do want to know how kids feel like they matter in PE. I am from the elementary, you know, my background in elementary physical education I was always baffled by why kids would love my program, but then a year later, it's open house or two, and the kids are coming back to open house with their younger siblings and say, I'm going to middle school and all the different things that they do not enjoy about that experience. So going back to what you mentioned earlier, when we were trying to cultivate this idea of being physically active, enjoying the aspect hmm. of physical activity, what happened in that transitional period from yeah. elementary to middle school? So um, I, I'd like to be able to, to maybe invite teachers to think about the, the student voice in the pedagogy. So going back to what Ben mentioned earlier, I think sometimes teachers have this slant or view. I don't, I don't want to think it's power, but sometimes it may be power. It could be the coaching influence, so many different things that influences their instructional decisions and creating these opportunities for students to enjoy physical activity and learn and, you know, do all the things that we're trying to develop. But I, I just wonder how much um, do, do middle school teachers, and of course I'm just going to go out there and put it out there, do middle school teachers have the schedule, the time? I mean, they have a lot of barriers. They have large class sizes. They have strange amounts of time that, you know, I've one, one of our former students, she's teaching middle school now, she told me she has 34 minutes yeah. for class, and that's where they have to dress into their PE outfits have some sort of activity. Sometimes it's halfway across the, the campus, come back, get dressed down, be ready to go to the next class. So thinking about the different barriers that they have, where can we still invite them to investigate the student voice and, and help create their pedagogies to, right. to be meaningful? Well, that's, there's some really great ideas there. I think um, tra transitional research, student voice, uh, with concerns about... Um, student activity, uh, yeah, I think you've got the good grounds of a uh, dissertation project there. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Uh, that means a lot. Okay. Um, any other questions? Have we got time? I had that other paper. Should we skim through that or? Yeah, no, no. Uh, everyone here would probably love to hear more about uh, that. Uh, I, before we leave that one, just um, in terms of schools, do you think schools still provide the most important social context within which, you know, these gendered uh, processes can be under, better understood or uh, interpreted and then perhaps transformed <laughs> if they're inappropriate? I was surprised with my research. Uh uh, because it was sort of open-ended about 
the influence of rugby on these guys' lives and what came through was the school context was the most important. Um, so I had thought it might be the parents and the mother or father getting these boys into rugby or uh, maybe an older brother's influence. But what was, what was clearly the most important was the uh, social context within schools, the, the groups within schools, what was important in schools, uh, how schools um, uh, would say, you know, you've got two sports you can play this year. You can play soccer or, or football, as it's called worldwide, or rugby. And really there wasn't a choice because if you opted to play for soccer 20 years ago, there was something wrong with you in New Zealand. Um, so there was, uh, I was amazed at how influential uh, the schooling context was. And I think the fact that you've got a group of eight, 10, 13 year olds in these social contexts, all interacting, um, and they don't have a maturity to critically reflect on how they perform or, uh, yet it's, it's really influential that, that peer group, and, but it's the schools that bring those peer groups together. And somewhat amazing, if you talk to adults now, they can still talk about their classmates from age 14 or, and it's amazing what sort of influence that has had and how it's shaped them. Um, yeah, and there's, a, there's issues there uh, because it's uh, Lord of the Flies sort of survival of the strongest uh, in some sense. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure about the gender issue, Ben. I think the gender's... Uh, tied to so many other things, media, family, uh, not just schools, but um, schools obviously an influential context in that as well. Right. All right, thank you. Appreciate that. Let, let, do you want to move on to uh, your other paper? Okay, cool. So this was um, with uh, Yoran, who uh, was my PhD student. He's become a publishing machine post-PhD, and uh, he's uh, high-flying. He was a top... Uh, tennis player out of Sweden and um, he fell in love with a Kiwi girl and came and did his PhD in Auckland and uh, uh, he's, he's now a good friend, uh, Yara. Um, so he, uh, I was supervising his PhD and one of the issues uh, in physical education research uh, that David Kirk has particularly talk, taught about has been the they are the dominance of this multi-activity sport-based physical education. So this is where phys ed is taught in, say, two-week blocks, and you're doing uh, basketball, and you've got five phys ed lessons, and you teach a few skills. You have a warm-up, you teach a few skills, then you put those skills into a game situation. And after two weeks, you then go on to volleyball. And at the end of those two weeks, you, you're having a, an hours long game of volleyball, and then you go on to athletics or gymnastics. Does that sound fairly typical in the States? Yes. Yep. Okay. So my understanding is that um, model of teaching for Z is uh, relatively dominant within the Western world. So again, if we think about how effective is that model of teaching for Z? At the end of two weeks of doing volleyball, 
have those students actually learned how to set, dig, spike, do a jump serve? Of course they haven't. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Uh, yeah, they, they don't. And the very next year, the phys ed teacher can repeat the same two-week uh, module and the outcome is the same. And then the, the next year, you can do the same. So this model of teaching has been critiqued for not actually teaching skill, um, uh, for not uh, uh, encouraging uh, a lifelong love of physical activity, because at the end of two weeks of doing volleyball over three years, you still can't play the game. You don't go and join the volleyball team. So there's been a whole range of critiques of this model. And in some ways, we were interested to know why is the sport-based model dominant and what are the factors that uh, contribute to its dominance? And Yoran's uh, PhD was based a, a year-long visual ethnography at a boys' school with uh, 60 students. And so he, he, um, it took a while to get ethics clearance, uh, but he was allowed to give the boys video cameras and they could video bits of the phys ed lessons. And then he would use those uh, video images to interview folk in focus groups or uh, individually to talk about what's going on here, what do you like, what don't you like, uh, tell me what's important. We became aware that pleasure was something really important, uh, but hadn't really been written about a great deal within the phys ed context. So we uh, thought that pleasure is actually central to human lives. So what we get excited about, um, often, often the reason why we go to work, why do we go to work? To earn money? Uh, to, I mean, Ben, would you do your job if you didn't get paid? I know you love it, but would you do it? Uh, I would do some form of what I do. Uh, would you, you do the marketing? But I wouldn't call it work. You wouldn't I would, call it work. Yeah, you, you're right, Richard. Yes, carry on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be playing a lot more golf. Let's put it yeah. that You would too. Yeah. <laughs> we, all, we all would. We all would. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so the, the point is often we go to work because we need to pay the bills to live. Yeah. But um, really we're going to work so that we can do the things that we love. And that might be golf or it might be fishing or it might be art or reading or going to movies or eating out or travelling to Greece in the holidays or whatever. So pleasure becomes an important part of life. And uh, pleasure is sort of productive because in the sense that if you enjoy playing basketball, as an example, then <clears throat> uh, that pleasure encourages you to keep doing it. Um, likewise, with maybe fitness activities, you get a pleasure through feeling fit, through feeling healthy. Uh, you probably get a pleasure through knowing that you're, doing the right things for your body. So pleasures are a productive force and they're central to human life. And somewhat strangely, they've not been researched a great deal within physical education. 
Yet, <clears throat> uh, health and phys ed, we're often dealing with a whole range of issues dealing with pleasure. So in health education, uh, for many years, you need to eat these foods. You need to be careful with foods dense in fat and sugar and salt, which are the foods that we all love because they taste good, that give us pleasure. <clears throat> so we're telling people not to eat the things that taste good and give us pleasure, eat these other things. We're telling people don't go out there and have sex because um, look at these horrible uh, slides of diseased genitals. Um, <clears throat> Uh, well, they do that in New Zealand anyhow. They try and scare kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's they do it here, too. Health education. Yeah, they do it here. Yeah. That's a pedagogy health education sometimes. Yeah. And really strangely, if you're talking sex education, you never mention pleasure at all. Oh, it could be okay, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yet if we really want people to abstain or to get fit, and often it can hurt to get fit or to eat these particular foods, then this whole area of pleasure or, or uh, uh, a smoking cannabis, I believe in some of the states it's now legal there, then there's issues of pleasure that need to be discussed because we can understand pleasure is productive. Okay, so, the, so part, of, um, part of this paper was thinking about the role of pleasure in physical education and how does that link through to keeping this multi-sport classes uh, dominant? But, uh, so Joran spent a year within the school, a couple of days each week, interviewing, observing. And what, what was really clear at the outset was that sport was conflated with physical education. And uh, the school would uh, use sport as a means of advertising itself. Uh, so... In its um, web pages, um, it would say that uh, sport's a central part of the school, that many of the boys go on to play representative uh, rugby, uh, that uh, when you walk into the foyer of the school, there's trophy cabinets and there's pictures of teams. And uh, so sport is looked upon as a good thing, as a positive thing, as a pleasurable thing. And... <clears throat> Here's a school saying we're a sporting school and um, I think many adults think that sport helps uh, develop character, particularly in boys. Uh, sport turns boys into men of good character. I think that's the dominant discourse and I think the school is using that discourse to encourage parents, it was a Catholic boys' school, to give their money to the school to educate these uh, these kids. Um, so that was sort of the context of this, the, the broader school. The physical education was all basically games of sport. There's a little bit of teaching school, uh, but most of it was playing uh, sporting games. And rugby dominated, not surprisingly, and they were tackle games of rugby. They would, uh, the teacher would get the students, would select two captains, believe it or not, and ask the captains to select teammates. So, Yaron asked them, how did, how did the students feel about that? 90% of the students said it was a great system because you end up with even teams and even teams often lead to a better game. Who were the 10% that said they hated it? Obviously the kids who always got 
Pick last. Oh, okay, we'll have so-and-so then. Oh, that leaves us with so-and-so. Um, <clears throat> uh, the, the phys ed teacher's philosophy was to encourage a lifelong love of physical activity, and he believed that getting kids, uh, introducing them to a wide range of different sports, hence the multi-sport activity, that if they were ex gained experience to a range of sports, the kids will find one that they love. And uh, he also wanted to role model his love of physical activity, so he would often join in the games of sport and show how good and skilled he was. So then, uh, talking through the results, what became really clear is, is the bulk of the students loved phys ed. And if you talk to most students, uh, many boys at a secondary school or high school will say their most favourite subject is physical education. So it works and it is pleasurable. Uh, for girls, it's um, often not ranked as number one, but it's ranked as one of the uh, still uh, most enjoyable uh, uh, subjects in a school. So when you ask uh, the boys, what did you enjoy about it? They talked about the game, they talked about competition, they talked about um, some of the fitness work. They thought it was good for them. They thought it was making them healthy. They enjoyed the social aspects. They enjoyed talking about the games afterwards. They enjoyed looking at the videos and seeing who was tackling who, uh, who was dominant, who was the most skilled. So the bulk of them really liked phys ed. And they equated phys ed with sport. They equated sport with health and the building of good character, the building of fit bodies. These were the messages that they got from it. If you view physical education in that light as a good thing and a pleasurable thing and a healthy thing, are you going to be critical of it or want to change it? No, so the, the bulk of them thought phys ed was good. There was no problems for them. Um, the ones who didn't like it, so maybe about 8% of those students disliked it. Are they going to be critical of it? Absolutely. They tended to blame themselves. There was something wrong with them. They were unfit, they were unskilled. Uh, they um, didn't like to get hurt, didn't like to get tackled. So there was something wrong with them. So the problem was theirs. The problem wasn't physical education because they had also bought on the idea to that phys ed is good, it builds character, that it's good for fitness, it's good for health, and that it's meant to be fun. So they never raised any issues about it. So there was no voice of resistance. Physical education is also a marginalised subject. So is the principal of the school going to be concerned about what's happening in the phys ed class? When would the principal be concerned? If there was a fight or people got hurt. Something, got hurt. Something goes into their office, an yeah. issue from your classroom goes to their office. Yeah, so if there's a complaint from parents about kids getting hurt or injured, if there's a complaint that this isn't effective physical education by a parent, if there's complaints by students, but those complaints don't filter through. So because physical education is a marginalised subject, when you have parent-teacher interview night, who do the parents want to line up and see? The maths teacher, the science teacher, the English teacher, 
and the phys ed teachers hardly got anyone on their line because the parents don't really care either, although they think that it's good that the students do phys ed, but they don't really care what's going on in it. The principal often doesn't know, or the principal thinks if they're teaching sport, that's a good thing. So because phys ed's a marginalised subject, because it's producing a range of pleasures, this whole idea, and because it aligns with the phys ed teacher's philosophy, we've got one of the most highly ineffective educational practices dominant in the world and going unchallenged. Because what does that model achieve? If you ask students, what do you learn from phys ed? What do they say? If you ask students, what do you learn in, in mathematics? What do they say? Basketball or football. I learned how to play, if we're lucky, that's what they're saying, right? I learned how to play rugby. Yeah, okay, so they might learn to play the games. Do they actually learn it? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's so. more a music appreciation approach, right? Where yeah. you're yeah. exposing them to exposure curriculum. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I really like that, Jeremy. I think it's a really good point. It's, uh, to me, physical education is movement appreciation that doesn't always work. I love that. I love that. But, yeah, so that... Um, uh, that was, that was fundamentally that paper. Um, and I guess underpinning it was this desire to try and critique what we do to encourage people to think more critically about it. So think about what can we do to actually transform for Z. And I guess some of the things that Ben might be talking about, cooperative for Z, thinking about emotions, uh, 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 different models of physical education, whether it's, um, uh, I don't know, sport education or teaching games for understanding. Uh, there, might, there might be other ways of teaching that might be educationally more effective. Uh, but these tend to, tend to not happen. So any questions at all? Can I just ask one quickly and then, uh, then maybe they'll get the ball rolling. So... Um in terms of pleasure in physical education, uh, are you saying that if we explored some of these uh, innovative pedagogies, we might have more of that? Or uh, what do you think it would take for us to actually get to a point where maybe it's not, you know, uh, full out uh, effusive pleasure, but it's... Uh, you know, uh, at least the kids are content and the kids are actually learning something. Yeah, well, I think it comes down to what your philosophy of what physical education is meant to achieve. And um, I think if you do want this lifelong physical activity, which many physical educators uh, say is important, and that is then underpinned typically by a biomedical view of health, that we know that physical activity is good for the body. Um, but the reality is... Uh, Physetas fail. So something like 40% or 50% of Australians are completely sedentary, meaning they don't accumulate 30 minutes of moderate physical activity in a day because they drive to work, sit down at work, drive home, sit down at home. It's quite amazing that you can't accumulate 30 minutes. It's amazing that 40 to 50% of the population, that's how they live. Um, 
But if, if you are interested in getting people active, then at the very least you need to consider pleasure because <clears throat> people aren't going to do things typically that they don't feel good about or it doesn't make them feel good or that they, you know, there's sort of moral pleasures as well. People will not eat sugar and then feel good about it because they feel like they're being good. Um, but that's, there's a morality in there. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's those moral pleasures. And uh, at the very least, I think you need to think about pleasure within the curriculum um, if you are interested in this lifelong physical activity. If you're interested more in education, then I think you need to think about what do you want them to learn and why do you want them to learn it and what's the effective uh, pedagogy to help them achieve that. Um, I think a lot of physical educators are lazy. I think they, uh, their own biography where they were good at sport, where they got status, and because they got status, they felt good about sport, and they wanted to become physical educators because that was a context that they felt good about. I think that biography pleasure link has driven the teaching of phys ed to its own detriment <clears throat> because you then get teachers basically teaching sport. And if you've done a four-year degree, you could probably get somebody off the streets give them two weeks of training and they could go into a classroom and teach phys ed uh, the way that a phys ed teacher teaches sport. So uh, I think there's a range of issues there and uh, some of them would be good for PH PhD topics to explore. Um, and I think uh, Ben's interest with uh, emotions um, ties in with pleasure. Um, and I think it's a, a topical one and a worthy one of exploring as well. Yeah, I think we need to do something in the future, perhaps, related to the social and emotional development. Anyway, uh, let's have some of those some questions from the students. So some of the things <coughs> that you Richard. just said about the biography of the teacher and that link in with pleasure is actually tying me back to last week and Phil Ward's um, bringing in of joy. And so he, he threw me off last week he did. really badly um, by talking about how, um, number one, that joy was easy to observe, but that's another conversation. And that, um, but that if, um, that if there wasn't joy, we wouldn't continue, right? So uh, right. it's almost as if pleasure takes it um, to another step, right? In another place, but this idea, this idea that, there has to be this joyfulness in the teaching and in, in, so from his stance, from the content knowledge, the specific content knowledge of the um, educator, and then being able to transmit that, um, you know, through the teaching to his, to the students that when you take sort of that aspect of joy and tie it into um, one of the lines that I loved that was in the second piece about how, the pleasures of playing rugby and performing gender are intimately connected mm. and mm. we've got some joy that we need to build around um, <clears throat> inclusivity around gender. Yeah. Right? yeah. Because that's also the link in this, right? And that we're not saying, I, 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 I don't believe that you, that this paper and um, this was another thing I loved. You, you talked about, 
that you were trying to not validate what was happening, you know, that you were, you know, vindicating it somehow. I didn't feel that way at all, that instead it was this push towards um, enough of either or, right? And that right. what we really want is both and. And so how, how do we do that around rugby in, in, or in states around football, right, American football, or around baseball, or any of these sports that are dominantly male and, and, and hegemonically masculine, right, um, in all of those ways. So just his tying in of joy last week and then this week on pleasure, there's, there's something in there that, yeah. that needs to get looked at. Um, I, yeah, thank, thanks uh, for that, Jennifer. Um, Okay. There's another dissertation, did you hear <laughs> and, and I will tell you that from a math point of view, you're talking about things that tie to the core subjects, right? Yeah. The joy of mathematics really isn't all that different than the joy that's happening in playing rugby. And, or the joy that happens from reading a book is, you know, the identities that happen in a text are, you know, not that different. So, you know, I'm, I'm listening. I'm learning. I promise. Um, the gender stuff is real. Maybe not so much in mathematics. I might, that, my, my, yeah. my, my Although, uh, I don't know. Uh, there's still more boys doing maths and uh, there's gendered issues there. Absolutely. I think, I think, I mean, you raise a good point about uh, the linking between gender and rugby and there's something discursive going on. I think uh, the performance of gender is tied to pleasure. And again, it's not an area that's well sort of researched, but um, people like to perform gender uh, because it, it um, gives them a certain pleasure. So people spend a lot of time thinking about their hair, what clothes they wear, uh, how they might walk, how they present themselves. And it's tied often to a particular linking to gender. So. Again, uh, if things uh, are accepted as normal and pleasurable, then <clears throat> they're hard to challenge. So, yeah, genders, uh, uh, dominant gender forms are dominant because they give pleasure. And belonging, right, which, Ben, you mentioned earlier, right? It, it allows you to belong mm -hmm. into something. Yeah. Be part of something. Correct. That's bigger than yourself. Absolutely. Which in, I, ties to middle school, yeah, super big. Yeah, that shift. That shift. And do you need to go? To I do, and because I'm going to deal with some wife issues if I don't leave soon. Because she has she has meditation a little while later, so it, it's seven, and it's, we're getting on towards seven, and I got to get home to be able to relieve her. But um, I really, I really did appreciate listening to. I, I do a lot of work around caste, and so my mind was working around issues of caste and and this collective story idea and how to. You know, in, in the Indian context or even in the diaspora context here, how do you use that collective story? So the PE context, it was interesting to hear your guys' perspectives, you know, and, and think about it in the classroom. It's not the way I was coming at it. Yeah. Cool. That's good. Nice meeting you, Jeremy. Good luck with all that. That sounds important work. Yeah. And uh, getting home and uh, giving your partner time for them. That's important as well. That's right, for pleasure. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So she's going to have any joy. <laughs> <laughs> right. yes, Thank exactly. you for letting me slip, no worries. And slip yeah. your bushwhacker. We'll be in touch. Yeah. Yes, you yeah.
Yep. Does that make us the other woman, does it? <laughs> it does. Does that make us the other Wait, woman? It's us the it? other woman. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good, Donald. Very good. Take care. Thanks. Uh, so, other questions? Folks. Yeah, okay. I have one question. So, uh, uh, based on the reading, I know there are many invisible powers that influence PE that lead to the multiple activity sports-based uh, model become a dominant model in PE. And because, you know, uh, as you mentioned in the paper, the teachers and parents are very happy to see the student busy and happy. And also the students feel happy when they do sports. And also this kind of dominant, dominant status also influenced by the uh, social culture context, you know, the culture and also mm -hmm. by politics <coughs> as well. And so, but anyhow, we are talking about this kind of model fails to achieve, fully achieve its educational, uh, our PE yeah. educational aims. Yeah. We're not only yeah. focused on uh, skills. But my question is, uh, yeah, so the question is, how PE teachers can certify himself from other teachers? Or how PE teachers can, can you know, differentiate, different, differentiate, yeah themselves from yes. other teachers because sorry because uh, you know uh, in, in because I was a PE teacher in China in China very uh, dominant dominant perception is like the PE teacher the way that they different they differentiate themselves from other teachers is skills because yeah. you know uh, because uh, other teachers uh, the the PE teachers cannot be replaced because only PE teachers can teach sports skills to the, te to the students. That is Chinese perspective. And here I also learn in America, I also learn some other perception that uh, the way the PE teacher uh, certify themselves from other teachers is uh, because of their expertise in house knowledge. So there are different, different perceptions of the yeah. way that PE teachers can you know, certify themselves from other teachers. So uh, how do you think about, how do you think about these? these okay, questions? so Eddie, you raise a lot of really good points. And um, before I talk about the differentiation, one of the points you made earlier was about the dominance of the multi-sport model and it's not achieving these educational aims. Yeah. I, I think that is an issue because if you were going to justify Fazed and say that Fazed needs to be in the, curriculum because it does this, this, and this, and it doesn't do those things, then that to me is either you need to change those aims or it's false advertising. Um, or, uh, and, if, and, and if you say, if you adopt that um, it's movement appreciation or sport appreciation, and if you say, yeah, sport appreciation, <clears throat> And we're going to have it in the curriculum because 90% of the kids are going to like it for 50 minutes, but they're probably not going to learn a great deal. Um, that might be a more honest approach, and that might be okay, and that might justify it. But if you're going to say, no, we're going to physically educate these people, and by this we mean uh, social-emotional well-being, health and fitness, uh, how to actually move, etc., then I think you need to teach to those things and demonstrate that you can do it. So the, the second, um, and yeah, so I think uh, Fazed's in need of change. 
The second thing about the differentiation, um, I think there's a couple of issues there. One, within a schooling context, uh, there's a hierarchy of uh, teachers, teachers who are most valuable. And <clears throat> phys ed teachers for a long time have uh, felt insecure about the subject within the, within the school curriculum. There were arguments in the 60s that phys ed was tied to the body, education is about learning, it's cognitive, it's about the brain. And um, there was uh, philosophical arguments that phys ed shouldn't be within schools. Uh, sport was seen as extracurricular because it wasn't seen as educational. So it was outside the curriculum because sport was tied to the body uh, and it wasn't seen to be a good thing. So uh, physical educators for a period of time, at least in New Zealand, were not allowed into the staff room if they were wearing sports attire, if they had track suits on. So at lunchtime, they had to get changed into uh, a, sh a shirt with a, a collar and uh, uh, professional-looking clothes to enter the staff room because there was an image of what uh, teachers should be. And dealing with the body and movement was not one of those. So for Zed, has that history of being slightly marginalised. Uh, parents marginalise it. Principals marginalise it because they don't really care what's going on unless there's a problem. Um, <clears throat> the way that phys ed has dealt with that problem, and I don't think it's been the most uh, effective way, has uh, they've created physical, edu physical education degrees as science degrees. So to justify the place of phys ed in the curriculum and to justify uh, phys ed at university, we're going to study anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, exercise physiology, um, and we're going to make it a science. The, the byproduct of trying to give phys ed status by linking it to science um, is a lot of the social aspects of what attracts people to physical education have been ignored within the curriculum. So I don't know about your undergraduate degrees, but uh, how much did you talk about emotions since this is a topic of Ben's? Where did you talk about that? Um, where did you talk about social issues? Where did you talk about gender? Uh, so, um, I haven't asked, answered your question, Eddie, <coughs> but I've rambled on about other things. I think, uh, I guess, uh, that's the part of the problem. You know, we, you know, we haven't done a good job of trying to, to me, uncover or excavate what are some of these real issues. And at the moment in the US particularly, high school physical education, uh, and I'm... Um, Generalizing here a bit, but I, I uh, uh, people in teach preparation won't send their uh, PETE majors to high schools in their area because they don't represent what they would class as a good physical education experience. So in many programs they send the students who are certified to teach K through twelve 
to elementary and middle schools. And there are very few high schools uh, that are considered um, appropriate for their students. And I hear we have two uh, ED students studying this right now in the state of uh, North Carolina. And I know when I was in Memphis, it was the same thing. We had, you know, one or two high schools out of the, you know, 12 high schools that we felt comfortable sending our students. So it is an issue. It seems like we have um, put the uh, quality of uh, high school physical education in the too hard basket, uh, I'm afraid. Sorry, Judy, what do you think? Because you're, you're out there. Um, which angle? You know what's going on. Yeah, I think. Um, high quality high school physical education? Well, I think, you know, when I look at, you know, Richard, one of the things you said earlier when you talk about the morality and pleasure, I wrote down, you know, you said morality and education, then I took it the next, next step of morality in our pedagogical decisions and educational decisions that we're making. Um, you know, I think when we think about the power uh, that goes on in schools, it's, you know, and Jennifer and I talk about this often, my background, obviously physical education mm -hmm. with hers with, with the, middle school and all the different courses, course subjects that you would teach, but you know, where we have put so much emphasis is on, like, why, why don't we study pleasure more? Because it's not a standardized test question that can be measured. And, you know, so we go with that argument and that piece. So I think what's really hard about uh, this discussion is it's, and I would always share with all the classes that I teach that are PEAT related and some that are general kinesiology that deals with instruction, we cannot standardize practice because people we teach are not standardized. So I think what's really hard is that we can't always, we try to, we have to generalize in, in a lot of ways, but there are good schools out there. It's just sometimes in our location, they're very difficult to find and to right. know that the masses um, descend and say, oh, we're only going to, you know, send our students to um, this high school or whatever. So, you know, there's, a, there's some different logistical things. So for me in this position here, I think about all the area colleges and universities mm -hmm. in our, in our area, mm -hmm. um, we can't all go and send all of our kids to the same school. So no. we have to diversify. I know a philosophy with, with our PEAT program here, um, they have experiences since we are K-12, we have an elementary, we have a middle, we have a, sure you, you know, we have the three levels and we have to be able to um, explain that even though I may come from a stellar program, I still have to go to a school and create. Right. And I think that sometimes in the position of teacher education, we hope to send them to a cooperating teacher that shows them how to do the, how to, create, how to create, to be innovative, to, to be innovative in their practices. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes with the different um, barriers that go on with now I won't I won't lie when I say I have many college students reflect on their ninth grade physical education experiences but that was the mm -hmm. football coach and half the time we went out and painted the football field to prepare for the game for Friday right, for the, but I do team. think that we do have folks that are trying to make a difference mm -hmm. I just think when we go back to the point Richard made about sport being extracurricular I think we have a lot of sport influence in physical education where I wish we could differentiate the two a little bit more yeah. and define that mm -hmm. being school hours, we do this. And then after school hours it does become extra. Before. Yeah. I guess my point was, I think that, uh, you know, there, if we went out and really did some, you know, in-depth uh, ethnographic work in high schools, we'd find there wasn't a lot of pleasure going on. And that would uncover a lot of problems, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. that's all.
So it goes back to student voice, right? I would love to hear what the we next year is. We need the student voice. We need the student <laughs> uh, It's a checkbox, right? In high school, it's a check. I've done my semester done. Yeah. Isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's a one semester, yeah, it's a one yeah, semester yeah. deal. So yeah, they get it, it done. It get, right. It's a check so I it's can graduate. Not, uh, I want to yeah. do it more. I mean, and it, and it was that at Carolina, too. You know, Carol, UNC, Chapel Hill, the first land-grant university in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to graduate, you had to pass a swimming test. Right. Hmm. Because educated men knew how to swim. Huh. And they only just got rid of it in the last 10 years. So I think it's really fascinating, again, the tie-in between... Interesting legacy. Gen yeah, between gender. And, and so your stories about the PE teachers not being able to come in without being dressed a certain way, mm -hmm. you know, sparked me to that story. Mm -hmm. Because um, it's just, I don't know, this, this idea of checking it off. I mean, I want to take extra, extra and on off of curricular and core for you that that you know that gets to be my legacy yeah. great you know and then one more thing with pleasure and you said something earlier i think about how many you know and, and i think about my child who is going to start kindergarten this fall and how we enjoy our reading time and we enjoy to read and we can self-select our reading but once we start to quantify how much we have to read have to read and what level we have to read on right so then that's where i think we it's not just physical education where we're doing this we're we're doing this across the board yes. in education. Mm -hmm. We are taking the pleasure out of learning away. We're, we take it away. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I, think that, I think there's uh, broader issues tied to that as well, isn't it? So I know that uh, Jeremy talks about neoliberalism and the dominance of a capitalist model. And, and so what underpins a lot of education is this idea that if we can get people as productive scholars, they're going to be good in the economy and then I guess if you look at more philosophically about how are humans relating to that sort of industrial education that we're, be we're becoming products to fit into the economy, you look at rates of depression, uh, marriage separation, a uh, whole range, range of things, opioid addiction, things that we can look at that suggests um, we don't actually create a life that's the most pleasurable for us. And uh, maybe there's a need to reflect on what we're doing and uh, try and make a difference somewhere. Well, that was a happy night to end on. <laughs> well, I learned a new word last week called meliorism, uh, which is uh, for the better of things. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm starting to wonder, is that tragic meliorism or something? Can you repeat that word? Uh, meliorism. How do you spell so, that? Uh, M-E-L-I-O-R-I-S-M. I'm not sure if I'm even okay. pronouncing, it, pronouncing that right. Yeah. Uh, Richard, I was a phys ed teacher in 2015 and I was interested in student voice and I wanted to find out more about how I could utilize the voice of my students and, you know, try and get to these silent voices. Uh, I'm still here four and a half years later uh, trying to figure that out. Uh, um, I have the luxury, I guess, of having the time to figure that out now at the moment. Uh, I mentioned, and again, this was something that's come up in other discussions, is the, this notion of, um, as I said, I mentioned the word tragic already, because I do think we have a lot to be cheerful about with the work that gets done in PE. And, you know, like the work you're doing is very important. And, you know, we're in a better place now than we were ever, maybe. But, you know, we, there's always more to do. Um, but I guess, you know, we can get caught up in this, this tragic nature of it all. And I think the teacher is the epitome, as I said before, of the tragic hero, that they're noble. Uh, they want to do the right thing and they kind of they're shown to do the right thing but ultimately the work they're doing is often flawed 
Um, <clears throat> so I guess for me, it kind of comes back to the teacher in the classroom again and your two papers. I know the first one, you had the opportunity to go into a school and speak with the students. And uh, in, the, in, in the second paper, uh, you're, you're uh, at this, the first author, I forget his name now, but he had the opportunity to go in and observe classes. Uh, mm. And, uh, Goran, sorry, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just think that, like, uh, you know, there's no neutrality in education, okay? Uh, we're passing on some vision of the world to students, and I think we need to better own that fact as uh, teachers and adults, and we need to ensure that what we're doing serves the purpose that we value. And I think we've all kind of touched on that uh, here this evening. But, um, you know, the readings focus largely on the world of the students. And these, you know, at the same time, these were constructed, controlled and perpetuated by adults. So, you know, mm. we talk, we talk, you, know, you mentioned earlier that we need to try to get students to reflect critically. But I think teachers need to do first as well. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. there exists a need for critical <clears throat> reflection in teacher practice, both the pre-service and post-service. And, you know, as I said, I'm at a point where I actually had to, you know, almost give up my job to pursue this pursuit of imperfection or this pursuit of critique or to try and advance my ability to critique the work that I was doing for the first six years as a PE teacher in a high school. So, you know, if that, you know, I'm just wondering where these spaces exist for the teachers to do it. And it's very important that the teachers themselves do it. And just, I guess, I'm going to put boil that down into one question is, can you tell us like what sort of innovative approaches are being done maybe in Australia to get teachers, pre-service teachers or post-service or teachers to reflect critically on the work they're doing? Uh, or is it really just not happening? Uh, no, I think um, the degree that I teach on is a four-year education honours degree, and uh, they they do sort of 60% education papers that everyone else does, and 40% health and physical education. And uh, there's, there's a critical element that runs through the health and physical education dimension, and the first year is underpinned by this desire to get the students to reflect on their own biographies um, uh, throughout a number of papers and things that have shaped them uh, at the same time while learning about um, what should phys ed or what is good physical education. <clears throat> uh, by the time that they uh, graduate uh, after four years, uh, we're sort of hopeful that they've been alerted to a whole range of these issues and they'll actually go out and teach differently. Um, it's a relatively new degree and we don't know what's happening. But I think um, that's an area of uh, research which is important. And I know my um, Yaran, who was the first author, <clears throat> he's doing that now uh, in Auckland uh, and in Sweden. Uh, he's looking to see the students of these uh, critical degrees, do they go out and do they teach and how do they teach and what is different? Um, and I, th I think there's a lot of pressure because if you're a young teacher going into a school and this is the dominant way that Pazette is being taught and you try and challenge that um, and you've, you've got other Pazette teachers saying don't listen to that politically correct ivory tower, they don't know the real world, look at how we teach, there's all that pressure uh, on those people uh, to teach how they teach and it's often easier. You can just roll out the ball and blow a whistle and you can get away with it. <clears throat> so it's research un underway trying to work out 
<clears throat> what impact uh, we have with teaching and uh, encouraging teachers throughout our undergraduate degree to be reflexive about their own biographies and philosophies. Um, I'm not hugely optimistic we're going to make a difference. It's worth a shot, mate, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think very, very much so. It has Goran looked at uh, Zeitner and Dubachnik, who years ago talked about the washout effect? So, uh, you know, in terms of uh, once you get out there, it, it's really just, it, that's a terminal that would just explain what you just referred to as okay. you know, uh, fitting into or being socialized into what exists already and leaving all that idealistic uh, social justice warrior stuff behind, you know what I mean? Back at, back right. at university. Back at that place, that ivory tower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did that answer your question, Donald, or you want to follow up or? Yeah, no, like as again, that's why I call it the tragic manierism or whatever like that. You know, you're hopeful for a better future, but at the same time, that hope might be the tragic nature of itself too. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, again, I just kind of want, I wanted to kind of tease that out a little bit more and stuff, you know. Um, but like, I wouldn't be here if I didn't have, if I didn't want to question myself further. So it's difficult for me to understand people that maybe that are teachers that don't. And I, but I've seen it in my own practice as well, too, or in my own experiences. Yeah. I, I think um, I think for Z teaching at a secondary school uh, with today's teenagers, uh, I think it's a challenging, challenging job. And I think in part uh, for Z teachers, are interested in their own survival. So if they um, can't continue to do the work that they do, um, you know, they get out or they transfer into teaching another subject. Um, and I, I don't know, Ben, whether, what's the life expectancy of phys ed teacher teaching phys ed? Well, you know, I think uh, there is a huge dropout in the first uh, three years in, in the first five years. And, I, and quite uh, ironically, a lot of physical educators end up in administration. They end up as deputy principals or principals, and yet they don't then look back. Uh, it would be an interesting study. We were in New Zealand, we were gonna do that, where we studied uh, principals of primaries uh, that, uh, you know, so we'll, why don't you, you know, have a moral obligation or ethical obligation to teach health and physical education, or make sure your teachers do? As mm. like other things get in the way, just like in life, other things get in the way, and that's why, you know, that workplace uh, has a, such a strong influence on you, whatever that might be. Yeah. Other questions? I have one. One, I, and then. Yeah. Um, so my question for you, Richard, is with the 2008 piece, the one that came off of your yes. PhD work. Did you write a practitioner companion piece? No. Okay. I, no. I didn't mean to call you out on it. <laughs> I, I just was interested because it That's felt That's a good like idea. I always like ideas for papers. So I'm going to write that down. I would. <laughs> because the story, right? I have to acknowledge you. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I, um, yeah, I would, I would love to help by, you. Just by me a beer. <laughs> exactly. I owe him one. Well, you owe me a beer. Um, <laughs> it's all about pleasure. So I, 
One of the things that I think I've taken away from this program the most, so says the woman who has not published a thing yet, is that I, I really want this eye for the academic piece that then allows me to write a practitioner piece or allows me to write the policy brief that goes to, you yeah. know, that goes to government or the practice brief that goes to administrators. And so you're, the, the way in which you wrote the story really felt to me like something that district level PE coordinators that would, could then latch onto and be like, oh, now I've got something to do in a professional development opportunity, right? Um, yeah. And even if you throw it out there in the practitioner journal with, here's how you would do it, like lay yeah. out yeah. a PD in this in this article. Hmm. I, I want Dylan to do the same thing. Oh yeah, well, right. Dylan, I Dylan, want Landy Dylan, to do the same well, thing. Dylan and, uh, and Richard are writing a book, so maybe there you go. That could be a, a part of that, Richard. So, yeah, no, I, I think, I, I, Jennifer, I think you're absolutely uh, right that if you want to transform the world, it's not good enough just to write a critical paper. Um, you know, the next step is um, uh, how do you get those ideas out there? How do you uh, change what teachers are doing? And really interesting, if I go to a phys ed conference, <clears throat> often there's 90% uh, of practitioners are phys ed teachers and there's 10% academics, and you go to the academic presentation and it's with the other 18 academics <laughs> listening to the, the theory paper, and the practitioners are all excited about, um, here's this new way of teaching basketball, and they want to be given something that they can take away. Yes. So uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, how can you use collective story in a class for transformation? transformative purposes, uh, presented at a conference, if, if you've then got something to hand out that they can take away, uh, you're probably going to be making more of a difference than just publishing a paper. Um, yeah. Make yeah, more of an impact uh, with the teachers and the kids, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, my question is about the first paper. So um, as a PhD student, it is sometimes really hard for me to create a writing from my interpretation and data analysis. So I know there are a lot of information about the process of you creating a collective story on this paper, but I want to ask you what was the most challenging thing for you to, when you are unifying different characters mm -hmm. and writing a one collective story? Because, um, I just imagine what it would be like mm -hmm. to write one collective story. So I think there might be a possibility that you feel like there are some kind of two, one or two missing parts mm -hmm. when you're writing a collective story. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, <clears throat> I mean, the hard thing was to try and have a, a unified character because, uh, you know, one of the guys was the tallest in his class, the other was the smallest, and both, but the tallest was tall and lean and thin. And, right. um, but, but then the issue was, really, they didn't have an athletic body. So, uh, so thinking through some of those differences, you know, one of, one of the guys was from 
England, and he recognised that to try and fit in, um, uh, he needed to learn this game of rugby. But then he, he broke his arm um, when he was about 13, and he got scared because the other students were telling before the game of rugby, they were saying things like, we're going to destroy the opposition, we're going to kill them, we're going to kick them. And then he realised, oh, if my teammates are saying that, the other team's probably saying the same thing. And uh, he became very afraid. Mm. So, um, yeah, that was an issue. And uh, and you, you can't, um, but I guess on the positive side, it gave you a licence to uh, reflect on similar sorts of things and then pick really the best example or the strongest example um, to tell within the story. Um, yeah, I mean, I, um, from an academic perspective, uh, it was nice actually trying to write a story. It's not very often that you write a story. I mean, typically you're analysing, you're looking at discourse, you're um, theorising. So actually it was enjoyable to write it. Uh, and, and that goes back also to the idea that if you read a collective story, you might be able to resonate with it. So a lot of people, if you ask them to read a qualitative research paper or a quantitative research paper, they're not exciting to read. Uh, they're very sort of formulaic. Um, here's the person's quote. Here's the researcher's interpretation. Here's a link to theory. Here's the next quote. And... You can read a lot of those boring qualitative papers. And then, so what influence do those papers have on the other researchers? If you're reading something a little bit different, <clears throat> um, that might have an influence as well. I don't know, uh, Singham Bay, if I've answered your question either, but. Uh, yeah, I think you answered my question. <laughs> okay. okay. Yes. All right. Well, look, Richard, it is getting a bit late there. I know you've been up since uh, seven because I know you sent me your PowerPoint at that time. Uh, and it uh, might be time for you to uh, take a bit of a break. Uh, unless someone's got a, a throbbing question they have to ask. I, I'm a, I assume you don't mind if people email you in the future or through me. Yeah, yeah no, that'll be good. So pass on my email. Hey, yeah. nice to meet you all. Good luck nice with your dissertations, you. PhD. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. You've got a good... You've got a good lecturer there. He's a passionate guy. He's a Kiwi, so, you know, he's okay. Kia ora, mate. Thank you for your folks on social critical pedagogy and also for giving us some ideas about, uh, you know, our own critical reflection of what pedagogy is and what research is. And uh, it was a very thought-provoking uh, discourse I feel and uh, thanks again mate kia ora and okay. uh, you have a great day and uh, we'll be in touch how about that okay cheers Ben thanks for the thanks, invite mate. yeah go okay. have breakfast mate <laughs> <laughs> lunch lunch okay, yes, we'll, we'll, be in, we'll be in touch mate <laughs> okay we'll talk to you later cheers mate thank you take care